with you a couple other things that I wanted to check into. And um, last night when I was reviewing some things, I came across um, a podcast um, about a former Green Beret. So I thought that's definitely something up my alley. I want to hear about that. So I hope you guys don't mind. I don't know what you like or whatever, but I always do what I like. I've been dying to ask you this question. You got out September 3rd, 2001. Come on in, A week later, September 11th happens. The towers go down. What is the first thing that went through your head? Do you have one piece of advice for the kid aspiring to be an SF operator? Selection isn't an assessment of what you're actually doing. I want to take a call. And um, You take calls on your podcast? That's I cool. take calls. What's up, brother? Cabler, you son of a bitch. It was from an operation where they had killed this bad guy, and they took his leg. Mm-hmm. It's official. We're up and running. This is episode 001. I want to personally welcome everyone. To the Sean Ryan show. Okay, so this is the our first guest today show. is Mike Glover. Brand He's show. a badass operator, former Green Beret. We've worked together, known each other for a long time. This is the kind of stuff I want to hear. I asked him some really tough questions so that I think you guys are like really it, gonna like. Go if you're watching this on YouTube and you want to listen, please head over to iTunes, hit the subscribe button, give us a rating. We want to make this motherfucker go ape shit. Alright, without further ado, some research on this area. Welcome to the show, Mike Glover. Alright, Mike. Welcome to my show. How do you like Tennessee? I love it, man. It's beautiful. Thanks for having me out here. It's amazing. I, I I've never been here. Um never. I don't think I've ever been to Tennessee. I've been to the border with North Carolina and Tennessee. Doing some cross-border ops. Cross-border ops behind <laughs> friendly lines. Right. But it's beautiful, man. I love it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, man. I've had a really good fucking time since you've been up here. And it's great catching up with you. <clears throat> you know, the last time I saw you, we were in Yemen. And... Uh, getting shot at we didn't really get to know each other out there and <clears throat> and uh started listening to your podcast and we kind of kept in touch a little bit maybe once or twice a year but we got a lot of shit in common man i mean showed up and uh the first thing we did is go look for some treasures at the antique shops yeah i didn't realize how much we had in common you know you're obviously half Japanese, I'm half Korean, so got the Asian similar. thing in common. Um, I'm also a big, big antiquer. I've always been. Uh, I don't know if isolationist is part of the what we have 
assassination attempt and it was a pretty big deal getting shot up and we QRF'd you and it was a good day I mean it was a good day that you didn't get hurt and came back <laughs> good day to get compromised but uh, yeah that was that was a weird trip but um, but we're out of that now and, and you're here and yeah you know we got we were talking about isolating ourselves and I I mean I think a lot of us do that. One thing I also notice is how giving you are. And right now you got a toy drive going on. So for any of you guys out there that want to donate, Mike's got a toy drive. I want to bring this up now so I don't forget. But uh, I think that's just really fucking cool that um, that you do those kind of things. And, and you are constantly giving back. And that's cool, man. We, we always try to give back any way we can. I mean, we've, we've probably given in excess of $50,000 last year to charities to... $50,000? Mm-hmm. Charities to men and women who have died in the line of service, whether that's police, military, first responders. A lot of it, we don't even advertise that we do it. Um, but we leverage the community that we have and crowdsource from like-minded people who want to help people out. And yeah, I know you've done that before, but it's it's a huge thing for us. And every holiday season, we like to do the toys. It's the one instance, you know, I'm not a big materialistic kind of person, mm-hmm. but if a kid who's in a bad situation, which we all have seen that or experienced it ourselves, mm-hmm. if that could bring a little joy during the holiday season, which is a tough time for a lot of families, then, you know, so be it. We'll raise a whole bunch of toys and, and give them to less fortunate people that's awesome well when's the deadline to get the toys to you um honestly there is no deadline i'll hand deliver myself if if uh, people want to donate toys they can send them to our address it's on philcraftsrevival.com um as long as it's before christmas and then after the fact just stay tuned to the channels because we're always doing something right on man well speaking of christmas what is the one thing you want this year more than anything you know I'm, it's the first time I mean it's not the first time but it's solidified now it's the first time where I'm good man I don't want anything you don't want anything I've got everything you have everything look my favorite some of my favorite things to do are the freest things to do that's right okay picking up rocks yeah I, I rock Going out for so a if walk. I see cool rocks I pick them up I'm just like I put yeah. them on my shelf well, you did steal a big bag of mushrooms from my property down there. I harvest mushrooms. And I, st- I stole a bag of uh, turkey tail mushrooms from your yard. Um, that makes it through the airport. I'm going to try to follow it. I know what those well, are. You know, we'll see. The only thing you can do is arrest me. Well, speaking of Christmas, I, even though you don't want anything, I got you a little gift here. Ooh, okay. So, cool. Any guesses? Rubik's Cube. Go ahead. What do you so got? So this is a box of Milk Duds. Is it? <laughs> is it? Sounds is like, it? Sounds like it. It's something... Man, this is a lot of weight. I don't know. Okay, now All right, open it. All right, here open we go. Open that motherfucker up. Oh, my bullets. No, he wouldn't do that for Christmas. Mm-hmm. Is it going to punch me in the face? No. All right. It's not a dick in the box or anything. 
man, look at you. Hey, I should have guessed. Just a, just a little something for the ride home. Thanks, man. Yeah. This is 10 more pounds I don't need. Okay, uh, so gummies. Two bags of gummies. You. You're welcome. I saw you carry them for your ADC, so I figured I'd get you. you know, I do. I absolutely do. A bigger pack for them. Yeah. These will not be donated. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll selfishly take these gummy bears and milk duds. <laughs> right on. Well, let's just do a quick overview of uh, you know how you grew up, and then we'll get into your military career a little bit, and then uh, I really am excited to talk about Fieldcraft. But you know, where did you grow up? What was your family life like? Do you have any brothers and sisters? So I was. Uh, born in a uh, military installation in California, Fort Ward, California. My dad had already been in the military for a year or two. And I was born in a military family. My dad was in the Army. My uncle was in the Navy. He's probably uh, a, a super great, soldier great and doesn't grandfather who was yeah. a general in the Civil War. He hasn't it's started getting his memories back. Uh, DNA. I mean, What's this? You had a grandfather in the Civil War? Yeah, a Confederate uh, grandfather, uh, General Hood. No shit. Yeah, he was, a, he was a boss. He made general at the age of 37. He uh, lost his leg in Gettysburg, lost his arm in another uh, battle. Mm -hmm. um, he was a boss. He, he went to West Point. He was uh, known as a battlefield general. Like, he was the guy that did a lot of ops. He looks batshit crazy. If you see him online, he looks he looks like a boss, but you know he had a pretty sad story. He he eventually died, um, and then all of his kids were basically harvested out in the adoption system. Holy shit! Um, but my family on on my dad's side, the white side, uh, all grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and we grew up in the rural South. I mean my. My family's from Georgia, and they all migrated, migrated, crossed the border into Florida. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I grew up in Daytona Beach, Florida, for the most part. And I say for the most part because I, I was all over the place. Mm -hmm. I lived my first four years in life in Germany where we were stationed. Um, my mom and dad separated when I was about four or five. She went to North Carolina. My dad went to Florida. So I spent time between Florida and North Carolina with two separated parents, kind of just living life growing up. Um, I had a good upbringing. We were poor as shit. Uh, I remember that even if uh, one year I couldn't even afford, my mom couldn't afford to buy me shoes. Oh, so shit. I wore flip-flops the entire school year. Uh, my mom didn't even have a car growing up. We walked everywhere. Uh, so, you know, those sad stories of, you know, my life was hard. I walked to the grocery store, and we had to walk miles to get groceries. And it's stereotypical in American society, but it was true. I mean, we just didn't have a lot. My dad was bouncing around um, from apartment complexes to trailers. Uh, I remember when I was 15 years old, laying in my bedroom in my mobile home and being able to touch all the walls with my arms and legs. Uh, that's how small it was. Wow. Um, so yeah, didn't have much, but we were we were rich because we're happy. Um, we didn't feel like we were poor. Yeah. All know, love, huh? All love, man. My mm -hmm. my dad's a real loving guy, and 
He tucked me in every night. He read me bedtime stories. He told me he loved me. Um, he was empathetic. He was a real compassionate, empathetic. humble person. And growing up with that uh, was real impactful because I understood what emotional intelligence was. That's um, right. He was dumb when it came to women. He was a womanizer. Made a lot of fucking mistakes like most men do. Um, my mom was a disciplinary. You know, she, she ruled with a kung fu grip. <laughs> she used to beat my ass. And I needed that. I needed the balance of both Yeah. to be able to be successful. And luckily for me, I, had, I just had good parents um, and, and a really decent upbringing. Um, so, yeah, lived lived that way until I eventually ran away when I was 16 years old and I wrote my grandma a letter because I was living with her at the time. Where did you run to? Down the road. <laughs> okay, I did that too. Like a couple miles. But I lived, I actually lived in a motel for on and off for almost a year. What kind of, was it like it was a shitty shit little hotel. pay by the hour motel? Basically. But you weren't having any fun in there, were you? It, it sucked. <laughs> It was a sh little shit motel, and I thought I was living um, baller life because I was living on my own. But it was, it sucked. I uh, I never forget like I was leaving the motel to go to work, and it was too far to ride a bike because it was I mean it was miles. It was like twelve miles away, and so I decided to start taking the bus. But I had to wake up like an hour early, and I was getting on the sidewalk to get on the bus stop and this is just me being 16 living on my own um wearing my little get up for the job i had and a jeep drove by full of like teenage kids and they threw a wendy's flurry or whatever the, the frosty and it hit me in the chest and exploded all over me holy shit and i remember like i got hit with it and i just continued to walk and i just sat on the the park bench, you know, the bus stop bench, just waiting mm. for the bus, like, holy fuck, man, mm. people suck, yeah, and this it just crazy. was, like, man, this is my life now, um, so I knew I had to do something different, so I did, I joined the, I joined the army uh, at the age of 17. You joined the army at, at the age of 17? Yeah. No shit, where did right. you enlist? I enlisted in Jacksonville, Florida, in the infantry, um, did you have any, at 17 years old, you, who signed for you? So my grandmother signed for me to go in the military because she was my shit. legal guardian. And, um, so did you, did, did you have any guidance or did you just, I mean, that's what you knew you wanted to do and you just made it happen. You just went there. You didn't talk to anybody. It was just you and the recruiter. Nothing else have was a mentor? working for me. I didn't really have a mentor. I had, you know, I had some decent recruiters. They weren't the best, but I knew about the military. I mean, I played Army with my cousins growing up my entire life. Like, if you were to ask back then, even as kids, who was the most likely to go in the military? I mean, I slept with a, a Glock BB gun underneath my pillow. Um, I planned complex raids and, and operations uh, as a child. So I already knew. In fact, I made my dad a bet that I was going to go into Special Forces. I think I was 10 years old, um, where I was interested in the Navy. I was interested in Green Berets. And I asked him, obviously being biased, who was the best. And he said, Green Berets. 
And so I said, I want to be that. And I, I bet him. I actually bet him an MP5. You like, bet him an MP5? I said, if I get in, you're going to give me an MP5 SD. Because I was fascinated with guns. I had I read about guns and and uh, had magazines and books. And uh, I always say, yeah, he still owes me an MP5 SD. I was just going to ask, where Never is paid it? Up. He'd have to sell his mobile home to get that. Well, yeah, those are pretty, what are those, like 25 grand At now? least, at least. Yeah. That's a good bet, though. An MP5, nice. Solid. So you still want one. You could have said that, and, you know, maybe it would have shown up for Christmas. That would, see, yeah, if I can get an MP5 SD, I've actually tried. I've reached out to a couple companies. <laughs> I need an SD. Maybe we could do a little barter here. Gummy I, bears I don't, I don't even SD. need the SD, Mom. If you're listening to this, look, I don't need the tax stamp. I don't want the drama. Just give me the the standard model. Right on. And it, like, the, uh, MP5. with the special selector switch. Yeah, yeah. Right, right on. Yeah, with the, uh, Ziploc bag. Would you rather have an MP5 or an MP7? Um, honestly, because I'm more nostalgic and, uh, old school, I'll do the MP5. All right. Like, MD7s don't impress me. I mean, it's, it looks cool because you guys made it look cool. But outside of that, I've shot them and used them in combat. They're not that exciting. You have used those in combat? Yeah, I've carried MP5. You don't two. like it? Or I've carried MP7. I've, ne I've never killed a bad guy with one. I carried it on, like, PSD okay. kind of stuff. Um, because they conceal a lot better, mm -hmm. obviously, than an M4. Um, but the units... Special operations units that I've been in, guys don't you typically run them. No shit, I've heard guys rave about them. Yeah, the Navy's big about them. I mean, yeah, entire organizations and troops are using uh, those, and I'm sure that's for a good reason. Yeah, I mean, I do think that would have been the perfect weapon for what me and you were doing together. One hundred percent, but a lot better than what we were using. One hundred percent, but I agree with that. I was wondering why we didn't have those available. And it is pretty fucking cool looking. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, that's half of it, right? But, uh, all right, so 17, join the military, go to infantry, and how was that? Was it everything you had hoped and dreamed? It's funny because I remember the first, I went to Fort Benning, Georgia, infantry basic training, and I joined with an 11 X-ray option 40 ranger contract which means that in basic training i would be plucked uh after ait advanced individual training and then i would go to ranger regiment and so that was the plan yeah and uh, you know the option 40 contract contract guarantees you a ranger slot like the, the ranger instructors are going to come pick you up and you're going to go to ranger battalion i didn't think basic training was hard i thought it was easy as a 17 year old with a myriad of life experiences that were a little bit more difficult than most, it wasn't hard for me. I mean, yeah. I remember distinctly, because I was a squad leader in basic training, either threatening or punching or like checking dudes, grown men who were crying, who wanted to kill themselves, who wanted to get, you know, leave, get back to their girlfriends or the wives, and thinking to myself, like, holy crap, man. Yeah. This is like, at the time, join? 15 weeks of your life, and you guys can't suck it up to, to do a job to get trained up in the, in the military. And so I band together with a whole bunch of dudes that were just solid dudes that eventually went into special operations for the most part. Um, but 
was un- well, what was unfortunate is I got selected to be eleven hotel. Which what, is mean, a, what is an eleven hotel? It's like it basically it's an infantryman who drives who who rolls in a Humvee. Okay. So you learn heavy weapons like fifty cal, the tow missile system, um, and and you're considered anti tank. And only I, I actually liked it because I was like, oh man, I got I don't have to walk. I mean, I, I can have like <laughs> I'm a mobility expert because I learned the GMV or the Humvee oh. at the time, and I thought it was real cool. <laughs> Except that when they selected us, they did it randomly. I mean, they said, hey, you guys are Bravos, which is just basic infantry. You guys are Charlies, which is mortarmen, and you guys are Hotels, which is uh, uh, heavy weapons. And then when the recruiter or the ranger instructors came to pick us up, I was, you know, I was fabric-gasted. I was like, what the fuck's going on? Like, why am I not getting picked up? And they said, well, there's no 11 hotels in ranger regiment, which I was like, okay, that's not my problem. Well, it was my problem. And so I didn't get to go to ranger regiment like I was supposed to. I still oh, have shit. the contract. Uh, option 11 X-ray, option 40. And that was just their way of downsizing i mean i'm assuming incentivizing people and then at basic training basically fucking them and they mm-hmm. told me i couldn't go and i, I didn't have any other options so i picked up the a phone they gave me something and I called my know. uncle at the time who was a sergeant major in the infantry and said hey i don't know what's going on but this has happened and within i would say 48 hours they changed my mos to 11 bravo in basic training which um, is the basic infantry man. Okay. And from 11 Hotel, which is now my primary, my secondary is 11 Hotel. And they said, we're going to send you to, to a unit called the Old Guard, the 3rd Infantry Regiment. And when you get there, you're going to put a 4187 to go to Ranger Regiment. I didn't even know what the hell the Old Guard was, the 3rd Infantry Regiment. I didn't I had no idea. Um, went and saw the recruiter. A civilian came in and crossed out 11 hotel wrote 11 bravo put his initials and i was like damn it's that easy um and then i went and uh went and in process uh, the third infantry regiment in fort Myer, virginia hmm. <clears throat> how i mean that had to be just fucking gut-wrenching to i mean your dream was to become a ranger at that time correct mm-hmm. and they just fucking yanked it right out from underneath you and I mean, how long? I mean, once you they can do whatever they say, want. Fuck with it, you. this is my new direction, and I'm gonna kick its ass. So I knew, I knew I had a timeline where, I, you know, 4187 back in the day was the way in which you submitted paperwork to transfer units, and it worked typically. Um, it didn't work for me. Uh, long story short, but I knew when I got there as an E1 that I had to, number one, my uncle had been in the old guard. He had been a tomb guard at the tomb of the unknown soldier. So, uh, I had big shoes to fill. And so when I showed up, I was all about the grind, man. I didn't show up. I didn't show up day one in the military to, you know, to hang out with chicks, to get drunk at bars (laughs) and to fuck off. My entire objective was to go in special operations and I didn't give a fuck about anything else. So when I showed up, I went to work. Uh, I immediately, as a private, got my expert infantry badge, which is pretty rare as a PV-1. In fact, when I tried out to get my expert infantry badge, me and my platoon leader were the only ones in my platoon that got our expert infantry badges, Um, which is basically a a test, a common core task. 
and they assess you, mm-hmm. and then uh, you do a ruck march and all the stuff. When I got back from that, uh, I went to airborne school. What year is this roughly? Ninety-seven. Okay. When I got back from that, I went to ranger school. Everybody's like, "You're going to ranger school?" I was like, "Fuck yeah, I'm going to ranger school." Um, I just distinctly remember being different than everybody else I was around. Friday night, dudes were shotgunning cores lights in the barracks. I was putting on a rucksack to go out, and that's no exaggeration. Like, and and I didn't falter. I don't I I don't think I ever once in that unit drank at all. No shit. So you're about what eighteen at this time? Eighteen. Yeah. And, and you didn't give in to any of the pressure? None. And wow. they, they gave me a hard time, and I was like, fuck you, I'm not interested. That's impressive. Um, so when they were going out getting wasted, they would see me rucking across the Potomac River, going to Georgetown, carrying a rucksack. And I went to ranger school um, as an 18-year-old, graduated as a 19-year-old, went straight through, no issues. Um, got back, and then I assessed the selection process to become a guard at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, which to this day is the hardest thing that I've ever done. Um, that training to become a tomb guard took me nine months. Holy shit. To earn my tomb identification badge, which I, which I have. And I, I spent the rest of that time guarding the Tomb of the Unknowns, um, which is great because I didn't have to fucking deal with people or dumbasses. I kind of got to do my own thing. And um, yeah, I, I finished up my infantry time as a tomb guard trainer, I trained two tomb guards for a year. No shit. Yep. So, <clears throat> so you, and you became obviously, you know, the best at that. With, I, I find that impressive that you, your primary focus was to get into special operations, yet you still took that job. Sounds like extremely seriously, as you know, I mean, it's a fucking honor to, see that but um i mean that's doing something that you weren't set on doing and kicking its ass i mean that uh is pretty pretty fucking commendable yeah i didn't have a choice in it so the the path the army is like that it's a big institution so you don't have a lot of choice a lot of opportunity and so my idea was if i you know given what i was given i have a choice in which to be successful and at that time be all I could be in the army. So I chose that. Wow. So moving forward. Well, moving forward, I actually had a break in service and decided to get the fuck out. What day did you get out? September 3rd of 2001. I've been dying to ask you this question. This is a long time. You got out September 3rd, 2001. Yeah. A week later, September 11th happens. The towers go down. What is the first thing that went through your head, knowing, you know, your primary mission was, or your primary goal was to become a Green Beret in special operations, kicking fucking doors in, going to combat, that whole lifestyle, and then you immediately know we're at war. Yeah, it was, uh, and you're not in it. The biggest kick in the balls that I've ever had, because, I mean, backing up a little bit, I had the option to re-enlist. Obviously, I was on retention's radar for like, hey, this guy's an Airborne Ranger qualified dude. 
He's an E5. I made I made sergeant when I was 20 years old, um, and so I was a team leader in the infantry. Had good NCOERs, and so it's like, hey man, this guy's a good guy. We want to keep in the military. But I told them that I want sniper school and I want Halo school in route to 18th Airborne Corps LURS or Long Range Reconnaissance or Ranger Battalion. Um, and I was adamant about that. I actually went into a Sergeant Major's office who was the military district of Washington. So he's a command sergeant major. He knew my uncle. And he said, Mike, what can I give you to stay in? I said, this is the things that I want. And he goes, which I found later, I found out later is true. Halo or free fall school is not a reenlistment option. And it's not. Back then, you didn't, you didn't have a lot of incentive for staying in, so they used to give you schools to stay in. Uh-huh. And I said, Sergeant Major, well, you, we can make it an option, right? Because that, that's what I want. He's like, Mike, I can't do that for you. I mean, I'll call and I'll try, and he did, but it's not an option. So a CSM even can't make it an option. And so I said, okay, that's, that's my, I gave the options on the table, and they decided not to facilitate what I wanted as a dream. And so I decided to get out. I had a buddy who re-enlisted with me that I went to ranger school with or re-enlisted without me and he went to 3rd Ranger Battalion. Mm. He jumped into Afghanistan on October 19th, 2001. Son of a bitch. And so the moment it happened, I was actually in college and I had gotten out of the military, obviously, but I had transitioned into the National Guard component. Okay. So I'm sitting in a chow hall at Fayetteville Technical Community College getting my associate's degree so I could further my education and saw the events happen. I did some crazy shit, man. I, I immediately started making phone calls. I went home. I packed a duffel bag of my equipment. I, I threw my battle dress uniforms, my camo uniforms in the, the washer and then dried them and was making calls like, what are we doing here? What's happening? And I was at the time, I was in 30th Heavy Armor Separate separate brigade and I was in the scout platoon and I was a team leader so I had a little minuscule position that could affect something but I knew we were going to war so I had a choice to make which is real easy which was I'm going back in the fucking military yeah so on September 12th like zero nine in the morning I'm making phone calls to get back in I mean that had to be like at the exact same time that's happening two completely separate emotions one you know, tragedy, we've just been attacked and a lot of people died. On the other hand, you know what that, what comes after and everything you've ever wanted to do since you said you were 10 years old becomes a reality and you're not there. I mean, that had to be, it was one more overpowering than the other. Yeah, it was, I mean, I felt for the people obviously, but I knew that I was in a unique position to make a difference in the fight because mm-hmm. I was an NCO. I mean, I was a non-commissioned officer and I knew that there was an opportunity for me to get in the military and, and fight and get some vengeance. And that's what I wanted to do. I joined the army to fight. Mm-hmm. The reason I got out, because there was no fight to be had. If there was a war, if there was something going on, I would have been in it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I think something important to note is the biological instinct in men 
most men, the men I associate with, to fight. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, it, it's not, it's, it's to fight each other in training, because that's what we do. As kids, we fight and we, um, we grow up in those environments where we're displaying our masculinity and there's a whole bunch of psychological and physiological things that are associated with that. And I don't think we grow out of that. We grow up and we want to fight and defend. That's what men do. Um, and so it definitely was part of my uh, character and my DNA. And I don't think it was fake. I think it was something very real and I wanted to fight. So I, I had to go back in. How did you get back in? It was a battle because the army didn't really know how to handle a whole bunch of dudes who were prior service guys that wanted to go back in. Was there a lot of guys that wanted to go oh, back? Yeah. There was oh, a lot shit. of guys. During that time period, a lot of people who were prior service who had gotten out, I mean, even older guys who had gotten out, wanted to come back in and serve. So I had to go through the whole process again, which was... Holy shit. I had to go through MEPS, you know, as an E5, going back through MEPS. Um, you know, the whole duck walk thing, all that stuff. I had to go back through all that to get back in. And they had a program, which is kind of similar to what's called 18X right now, where you can come in off the streets and try out for selection. And if you make it, they'll send you to uh, uh, special forces training. And if you don't, you simply just go back to your sister unit. Or um, if you don't have a unit, whatever your job is, they'll find a job for you in, in that position now how old are you at this point uh at this point i'm 21 years old 21 years old yeah you just saw the towers come down yep and the only thing on your mind is i gotta fucking get back in there yep no shit i mean wow that's i mean that's that's a lot of courage i was young yeah that's a lot of courage so you got back in yep i got back in and I got the opportunity to go to selection, and I did that in 2002, and I was successful. And were you, where were you at in the mix? Were you, would you say you were top of the class, middle? I was probably about middle of the class, which is where I wanted to be. Uh, I'd always been told and grew up, you know, obviously going to ranger school, where I, I didn't want to be the spotlight ranger. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be the gray man. Yeah. And so I wanted to be somewhere in the middle, not standing out for the wrong reasons or even necessarily the right reasons. I just wanted to be middle of the pack. Um, I'm a really good rucker. I could, I can carry uh, a ruck really well. And I remember even intentionally slowing down on rucks just so I wasn't advanced. That's the first person running, different story. With my size, I'm not the best runner but I'm a decent runner, probably middle of the pack. And so when I when I got selected, um, I, I had confidence that I was probably going to get selected. Um, I didn't prepare. I prepared as much as I could, but my feet were hammered dog shit. I mean, my feet were just jacked up. Um, what, um, is there anything about, so selection is what you have to go through to become a an SF guy, a Green Beret. For those of you that don't know, <clears throat> but was there one thing that you just really dreaded about selection? Like, for example, um, when I went to Buds, the first thing that I was really worried about was the 50 meter underwater swim. 
I didn't know if I could make it and I was going to pass out trying, but that was the first hurdle that I was like, shit, man, I hope I make this. Is that, was there a specific event that you knew about in selection that you were dreading? Yeah, it's weird, but I was actually dreading the obstacle course, the nasty Nick. No shit. Yeah, I just, you know what? I had, I had an aversion to heights uh, when I first went to the military and what I what I recognized later in a latter time was I wasn't scared of heights. I just didn't have confidence in my physical ability. So when I developed my physical ability to push and pull my body weight, I had confidence going over an obstacle. Mm-hmm. So it was less about heights and more about my abilities to carry my own weight. So if you're you know I'm carrying a you know I'm climbing a forty foot tower. Uh, or obstacle course, then I would have confidence because I knew I could secure myself or, you know, not shake and potentially go to muscle failure and fall. So I was, I kept thinking about that. I remember thinking about that. But then when I did it, it's called the Nasty Nick, which is named after Colonel Nick Rowe, a Vietnam era veteran who started a lot of things at Camp McCall at the training facility. Um, I didn't have a hard time. I just, I got through it. It was a lot easier than I thought it thought it'd be. Um, my feet again were were torn up, and I had to suck it up. But all in all, it was a, a fairly decent experience. One piece of advice, I mean, I know you get a ton of DMs. Um, if you have one piece of advice for the kid aspiring to be an SF operator, what would it be? One piece. One piece would be selection isn't an assessment of what you're actually doing. It's an assessment of what you did prior to, to doing what you're doing. Meaning, if you show up and you do a 12 miler and your feet fall apart, well, your feet fall apart, but it's because you didn't prepare three months or six months prior and condition yourself. So the only thing they're doing is assessing it's kind of like us for contracting where they're just assessing your resume. They're not training you. So show up prepared and ready to assess. Um, not show up and have some expectation that you're going to get trained and build up to it. You better be ready to perform. That's solid advice. I say the exact same thing. So you graduate selection. Where do you go next? So immediately I, we, we go straight to the qualification course and start training and they identify what our MOS or job specialty is going to be and they make me a a 18 Bravo which is a special forces weapons guy weapons sergeant is the title which is an expert in, in weapons so that's the pipeline that I started which you know small unit tactics uh, culmination in Robin Sage Sear school high risk a language school, um, unconventional warfare training, the list goes on. What was your favorite, what was your favorite, uh, I don't even know what the hell to call it, genre? Phase, yeah. It, the, the, my favorite phase in, or, or genre was unconventional warfare. I mean, I, unconventional warfare, I didn't know how they were going to teach us unconventional warfare, but when they taught us and then we went into Robin Sage, which is a pretty famous or known at least um, field training exercise where you simulate and you know build 
an auxiliary underground network of guerrilla fighters, train with them, and then operate with them. It was super interesting, man. I mean, to jump into uh, behind enemy lines into this town and interact with chicken farmers and you know gas station clerks was pretty awesome. This is what fascinates me about the Green Berets is that you guys can go in in such small teams and create an entire fucking army and and do it so efficiently. And, uh, you know, when in Iraq, let's fast forward just a little bit for a second. In Iraq, when I was with the SEAL teams, we had to have a, for the most part, almost every op we did, we had to have an Iraqi face. And the mission became FIT, which is, you know, training uh, our uh, counterparts. We had no fucking clue what the hell we were doing. We're SEALs, we're assaulters, and we can't even take care of three guys. Yeah, yeah, uh, the correct way. Because we've never been shown how it was in our mission. And then you guys are out there, and it's the opposite. There might be three of you and a whole army of people. And, uh, I mean, how do, you, how do you even fucking start? How do you recruit? How do you start that? How do you gain the confidence and, and be able to trust a local national? Yeah, it's a process for sure. I mean, there's a there's a deliberate process behind it. Uh, it's never done like willy-nilly. You go in there and you have a plan on building rapport, assessing, recruiting, uh, vetting. And that process is pretty complex. It involves mm -hmm. biometrics. It involves uh, genealogy. It involves um, test evaluations, psychological evaluations. It's a pretty drawn-out process. And, yeah, it's... It was, Sorry, is there like a specific profile you're looking to start with or? No, it, for sure. It, it, it's mission dependent, right? It, because one mission, you know, if it's a 1208, you're looking for counterterrorism guys who are kicking in doors and shooting bad guys in the face is different than if you're looking for, you know, assessing and recruiting patrol officers who are going to be interacting with uh, the local populace. You know, they're not going to be assaulters. So there is a tactic behind it. And then they teach us those tactics. And when they when we go into, it's super interesting because when you go into Robin Sage, they they hire op four that are military cadets, West Pointers, like all these young impressionable minds that wanna be you. And then you have to uh, start them from scratch. You know, they don't have a big background in it. You have to get them online. You have to build rapport. You have to break bread. Um, it's super interesting, man. Um, what a lot of people, peep, a lot of people don't realize, which I didn't realize until I was in, is foreign internal defense or even counterterrorism foreign internal defense, which is FID, is not just a training mission, but a means to access and placement to that environment. So before the, the Vietnam War started, we were in Vietnam, Green Berets were training the Vietnamese. Uh, we exfilled. Ho Chi Minh uh, and, and trained that guy before he went in obviously uh, took over so it is an opportunity for us to do other things and now that bilat mission bilateral mission which is you and a host nation force is how you conduct operations because now you can't do it without it because you can't you can go in there as a unilateral package and 
if you don't have a strategy behind that, you're going to go in, kick a dude's door in, kill a bunch of bad guys, displace the environment, and cause a whole bunch of issues. You have to have some host nation force to be able to, you know, strategically win that victory. Okay. I want to I want to touch more on this, but we'll wait until your first deployment. So yeah. back to selection. Yeah. Your favorite thing was Robin Sage. So how long is selection? And did you finish it without any any hiccups? Yeah, so selection is obviously the for SFAS, Special Forces Assessment, and selection is the first thing. And then you go into the pipeline, which is known as the Q course or the qualification course, and that includes all the different phases. And I, I didn't have a hard time with anything. I, 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 you know, without sounding egotistical about it, I just got through it. No shit. First um, time, every time? First time, every time. I didn't have any issues. The, the hardest thing for me was learning a foreign language. And I learned French. It took me four four months to parler lou français or whatever you hear say it. It was hard because I, I had I knew how to speak or I knew how to read and write Korean, which is completely different, obviously, than than French. Different, different bases. <laughs> but yeah, that was difficult for me to be doing patrolling and small unit tactics it. and all this high speed stuff. And then sit in a classroom for four months and learn a foreign language. Mm-hmm. That was the hardest part, but I got through that as well. Oh, so you went, you months. already knew Korean, but they sent you yeah to learn French. Jeez. I was uh, I was a French speaking Asian dude that deployed to the Middle East for the most of my, or most of my career. A really good looking Asian dude. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate I mean, it. So are you? I like my cabin and like three people. I know that's <laughs> awesome. Know. But all right, so you go. Where did you? After the Q course, where so, did you go? <laughs> it's it's a, a cool little story, but when I joined, um, when I went into SF, they give you orders based off a of paragraph in line, which is just a, a way in which you identify what group or what battalion. They're basically, a, a, it's basically a number that assigns you to a paragraph in line that specifically points you to a direction of a unit. And I knew, I knew I was going to third special forces group, which is the group that I wanted to go to because they were the group that was going to war. And it was right down the road, right down the road from my training. I went into that group and started looking at battalions at the time, three battalions, first, second, and third battalion. I wanted to know who was the best battalion. I went into first battalion, kind of poked my head in, looked at their little display cases and stuff went over to the 3rd Battalion, did the same, and then I went went into 2nd Battalion. And 2nd Battalion's motto at the time, I think it's still the motto, was we do bad things to bad people. Nice. And it had the, the Harley-Davidson outlined kind of thing with we do bad things to bad people, Bush Hogs, 2nd Battalion. And I walked in there, and in a trophy case, they had this leg. It was a, it was a wooden leg sitting in the display case with a shoe on it and it I thought it was a, a guy's leg that had served in the unit and I got closer and it was like a it was a it was a, a peg leg basically mm-hmm. I was like well that's weird and next to it was like a five by seven picture of a terrorist laying a pile of blood with a whole bunch of special operations guys standing around him holy shit and it was from an operation where they had killed 
this bad guy and they took his leg and then they put the leg on display from this bad guy because he would he had been known as like one leg willie or whatever the hell was what his name was hvt omar one leg willie so they took his leg and they put it in display in the in the um the foyer of the battalion mm-hmm. and I, I said to myself this is the battalion i need to be in i i knocked on the battalion sergeant major's door and i said sergeant major my name is staff sergeant mike glover i want to be in your unit i want to serve and go to war with you guys and if you know special forces and maybe this is part of you guys too if you want something done you have to go out and get it so me asking him to be in serving his battalion he said why what would make me want to have you serve my battalion and i told him i was high speed i was motivated i was wanted to go kill bad guys he's like that's good enough shook my hand handed me over to his personnel person gave me appointed subject and paragraph in line to go straight to his uh, battalion i got assigned to charlie company which was going to war soon immediately in process and went straight to war that yeah. takes a lot of balls to knock on the door as a fucking new guy yeah. and say hey i want in and i want to go with you i mean yeah. as a leader if i had that happen to me i probably would have just that alone would have been enough but like i know how much fucking balls it takes to come and pound on this fucking door and walk past my wooden leg that i took <laughs> off that guy yeah and uh and you got what you wanted that's fucking awesome so were the were the boys pretty accepting when you showed up they were uh, i mean they knew we were going to war soon so they didn't have a lot of time to fuck with me you know special forces if you show weakness on a detachment if you are fucked up if you're running your mouth if you're saying dumb shit there is a likelihood that you potentially are going to get messed with um i came in hard charging squared away kept my mouth shut i knew the game mm-hmm. i mean i played that game as a tomb guard candidate for nine months keep your fucking mouth shut do your job go home repeat so when i got to the team i didn't have a hard time integrating and nobody really fucked with me because they knew i wasn't a shit bag i was there to work were you drinking at that time no i never straight laced i never drank alcohol ate sugar for the most part or ate like shit my entire 20s never wow never now a lot of teams would probably actually frown upon that they they did uh, i mean some guys did and i didn't care I, yeah. I i was raised this way with my mom where sure, i don't me. care about what the fuck you think about me mm-hmm. i'm just trying to do me yeah. Yeah. i'm more concerned concerned with bettering myself than what your perception is of me is and mm-hmm. i knew there was a right answer and a wrong answer and for me being in special operations the right answer was conditioning my mind my body and trying to be the best i could i, I thought alcohol was a liability and it, it, it yes. still is i've seen it destroy teams i've seen it destroy yeah. relationships it's fucked up a lot of people sure my mom my family has their own had their own issues with booze mm-hmm. in, in some ways mm-hmm. so i i didn't want anything to fucking do with it mm-hmm. wow i mean that's 
it's almost part of the culture um, in a unit like that. And um, as a young new guy, what are you, maybe 22, 23 at this time? Yeah, at the time, I'm, I, after the Q course, because it was two years, I was damn near 25. Showing up to a team who's already been to war and back, they invite you to go have a beer with them and welcome you to the team, and you say, I don't drink. I mean, um, that's hard to do. <laughs> that's real hard to do. Well, I had, you know, it wasn't for religious reasons. It wasn't for you know, an ideology. It was because I was always training to do something. Mm -hmm. So physically, I was always in some prep phase. So they would ask me, why aren't you drinking? Well, because I'm running tomorrow morning or I'm doing a ruck tomorrow morning. What do you mean you're rucking? We're we're at war. We're in Afghanistan. You're going to ruck? Like, yes. Because I'm, again, taking my life that I had prepared my entire life for, basically, seriously. Yeah. And that bugged a lot of people, man. I'll I got a lot of hate for it, but, you know, you want to be an alcoholic, you want to drink alcohol and be a fuck-up, go fuck yourself. Like, yeah. I'll be here rucking and taking care of my body and myself. And yeah, now I drink occasionally. I won't drink more than a couple beers. That's my limit. Yeah. Because I just don't like alcohol. But I, I like the social interaction. I like the taste of an IPA. But it's not something that I need. Um, and it's definitely not something that I use when I was in the military. You show up to third group. And how long are you there before deployment? Two weeks. Two weeks. I'm there two weeks before we deployed. So you didn't even have fucking time to get to know the team before you're in it. Well, no. I barely got my my issue of equipment before we ripped out and uh, headed to war. Wow, and the team didn't even have, really have time to see if you were a good fit. They didn't at all. Holy shit. Yeah, it was, and, and on top of that, the senior, because we, we operate in twos on a detachment, there's another 18 Bravo who's going to be my senior. He even uh, got hurt or injured, so he couldn't deploy. So I was going to be the Bravo, which is a big responsibility in a fire base in Afghanistan. You right. slide into the number one slot as a new guy. Yeah. yeah. I'm in charge of base security, base defense, tactics, weapons, and we were going to war. You're going on your first deployment. Yeah, my guys had already ripped out, and they... You know, they had already sent the PDSS, the pre-deployment site survey guys. Um, and so they were just turning and burning, coming back, picking up the main body. So when I got there, it was a rush to get everything packed. Guys didn't want to be in the team room because they want to spend it with family. And then when I hit the ground, I mean, I was running. We, we immediately deployed to Afghanistan. How many guys are on your team, roughly? Well, I think at that time, maybe 10. 10 dudes. Yeah, we're, most attachments are light by nature of guys coming and going and like I said my 18 Bravo senior was go was uh, in surgery so he had to, to get a surgery recover and so we deployed uh, that year to Afghanistan with uh, a, a little bit of a light package what year? Uh, this was 05 early 05 so that's a hot year mm -hmm. um, yeah now are you doing are you running indige? Yeah, part of the job is running indige. I mean, when I reported uh, as as an 18 Bravo, I was in charge of about 144 Afghan commandos. Holy shit! So there are 10 guys. There's 10 SF guys yep. 
running a 144-man army. Yeah, and basically I was the commander of them, so I was in charge of all of them. As a new guy? As a new guy. Holy shit. Yeah. I'll never forget he said, hey, your, your guys are formed up waiting on you, they, waiting on me. <sighs> yeah, you're the 18 Bravo, get up there and, and be their commander. Because everybody else had other stuff to worry about, you know? I mean, the 18 Charlies had to run the fire base, which is a full-time job of the, you know, base security and the actual physical structure, the generators, the water system, everything. The combo, base defense, the what combo are your, guys. Are what are your living conditions like? Shit. I mean... Tents? Living on a cot. Uh, living on a cot surrounded by stacked sandbags in a concrete-ish, just mud mud hut. Okay. On the second floor of a, a little structure. So you're way the fuck out there, like, at your own fire base. There's no PX. Nothing. There's no chow hall. Nothing. None of that shit. Are we're, you eating local yeah. food? A lot of the time we were. Or Mermite or MRE. I mean, we were the furthest northern fire base on the, on the border with Pakistan. Uh, and we had really not a lot of support. I mean, the closest support was JBAD, which is still hours away. I mean, if something, if something went bad. So how trained up, you show up in country, you're looking, you're the, now the commander of 144 Afghan force. How well are they trained? Did you, did you guys, was there like a changeover from another another team or are you starting from scratch no some of them were trained up by prior odas i think first group was there before us before that there was another third group team and so they had a, a little bit of training but that's i mean man when you're talking about afghans in a rural province of afghanistan that have no education have no aptitude don't know how to read, write. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all relative. I mean, if there's one thing they're good at, it's jumping jacks. It's jumping jacks. And climbing mountains. <laughs> climbing mountains and flip-flops and jumping jacks, that's their forte. You've seen that video, right? Of the, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, so they're pretty green. They're pre I mean, so you take over and... I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I'm assuming the first thing you want to do is figure out what they're actually capable of doing. Um, yeah, you have to, no matter what the, the condition or the situation, when you come into a new fire base or, or fall into new indage, you got to vet them. You got to put them through some kind of process to be able to see what their current capability is. We did that. It wasn't much. So we started from scratch. Wow. And we were doing small unit tactics every single day. I was doing small unit tactics with them every single day that we weren't operating. And this would be the force. Not only, this is before Afghan commando units, Afghan border police, uh, Afghan uh, national police. This is before all that. So they didn't have a job. Their job for us were, they were, Afghan commandos working for special forces guys. We paid them directly cash. So these were our first line of defense and QRF if anything went wrong. So you show up in country, 
you got to get to know these guys. You got to train them. You got to figure out what their capabilities are. You got to improve those. How long do you?